We wake up today with a serious threat to American democracy. Finally silenced. Tucker Carlson has been booted from Fox News. What a great day. He (laughs) exhorted people to fury and anger by telling them no end of lies. Thank God Fox News finally showed him the door. It's Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm with Lisa Garvin, Leila Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And we have some very important stuff to talk about at the top of this podcast. Shocking stuff that really attacks the value of democracy and the voting. Let's begin. What do four former governors, but not the current governor, have to say about the unprecedented attack on democracy and the value of voting in Ohio? Leila. Well, the former governors of both parties have said that they oppose the issue that would make it harder for voters to pass a constitutional amendment in Ohio. Former governors Bob Taft and John Kasich, who are both Republicans, and former governors Dick Celeste and Ted Strickland, who are Democrats, described this plan as really unfair to Ohioans. And I now I need to tell you about what Governor Mike DeWine has to say about it which is, you know, I mean, obviously the governor has to sign Senate Bill 92 to get this before voters on the August ballot. And he says he would sign it. They need they need that legislation to put it on the ballot in August because in December, they just outlawed August special elections and DeWine just signed that bill. Unbelievable. He did no explaining though, right? He didn't even... No, reporters pressed him, but he repeatedly dodged their questions trying to get at his rationale. He just said, I think that there's some advantage to having these matters over with, and August will do that. And when they kept pressing him, he just chuckled and said, I'm done. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the chuckle is the scorn for the citizens of Ohio. So terrible. It's basic. Look, what the Republicans in Ohio are doing is trying to disenfranchise the voters. They're trying to take away the power of the vote. And by putting in an August, which they have all publicly said depresses the vote, they're intentionally trying to depress the vote. Mike DeWine is supposed to be a champion of the people. I cannot believe he's going to sign this. He has turned into somebody with no spine. He does whatever the legislature asks. This is wrong. He knows it's wrong. Everybody pushing knows it's wrong. And that's why two Republicans and two Two Democrats who sat in that office said, don't do it. Right. Right. Yes. Bob Taft wrote a letter to the General Assembly pointing out that for a century, changes to the state constitution were decided by a simple majority of voters and that this measure would fundamentally change Ohioans' rights. John Kasich weighed in with a written statement to Cleveland.com. He said it never occurred to him as governor to do such a thing. He said that Ohio is stronger when we can all lend our voices and we all have an equal chance to participate in the work of our state's democracy. He said he knows what it feels like to have legislation overturned at the ballot box, but hey, that's how democracy should work. And it's not right to change that. And then Dick Celeste said, Those backing the August special election are total hypocrites because, of course, they just supported the bill that banned the August elections. And now they're doing this about face, likely to, you know, as a way to thwart the will of the voters in November on the reproductive rights constitutional amendment. He said if they believe so deeply in the 60 percent threshold, they should that should be what it takes to get this passed in August, which I thought was brilliant and so on point. And then Ted Strickland called it the shameful, arrogant action 
designed just to deprive Ohio women of their reproductive rights. And he pointed out that that arrogance comes from extreme gerrymandering that has allowed Republican lawmakers to feel invincible and that that they can trample the rights of Ohioans with impunity. That's it. That's what this is about. This is about saying, voters, it's not up to you. It's up to us. We're, we're in charge here, and we don't want you to have any ability to block what we want to visit upon you. The, 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 they don't have a single argument that makes sense for doing it. It's just because they want to amass power and they want to block abortion. I, I salute the former governors for speaking up, and we will be hanging this on every legislator that votes for it. This will be a stain on democracy in Ohio. And look, you're seeing it already. There are college students that are not going to states that they that they find are doing things like this. Businesses are going to stop looking at Ohio. This is not a place where you're going to have employees who want to be. You're neutralizing the voter. It's a bad idea and good for them for speaking up. Can, can I just add that, you know, you said they want to be in charge. They don't want the voters to have a say. And they keep blaming this on some kind of outside moneyed interest. But let's just look at the past to see how outside moneyed interest works in Ohio. And it feels very much like they're protecting that, the people who are paying into their campaign funds to keep them elected. Right. There's three lobbying groups that are in their ear mm-hmm. and in their pockets yes. every day. When they talk about outside money, they're the ones getting fat and rich off of it. Yeah. And right now, I mean, it's it's a whole host of people that have jumped on board this. It's the people who don't want to raise the minimum wage. It's people who don't want marijuana to be legal. It's people who don't want abortion to be legal. It's people who, who don't necessarily agree with the majority of Ohioans. And that's what they're trying to protect from. Right. They're trying to end the right majority rule. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Let's talk about this initiative in another light. Mike Curtin wrote a terrific piece for us over the weekend showing just how unprecedented and outrageous this effort to neuter the voters really is. Lisa, what did he show us? Yeah, Michael Curtin, who's the former editor and associate publisher for the Columbus Dispatch, and he's also a former lawmaker and former member of the Ohio Constitutional Modernization Commission. So he kind of took a historical perspective in his Sunday column. He said that in 1912, Ohioans voted to give themselves the power to initiate statutes to curb ongoing corruption in the state house. And he says Ohio since then has had a longstanding tradition of seeking maximum turnout for constitutional amendments. So um, there has never been an August special election for for important amendments to the Constitution. They always aim for when voter turnout was highest, usually in November. So there were about 194 amendments that have been on the ballot since 1852. Now, there was one on an August election, but it was a primary election in 1926. So in addition to the primaries, there was a proposal regarding municipal assessments. And then in August of 1874, there was a special election seeking voter approval of a new state constitution, which failed. So, you know, as he said, we have a 111 year tradition of letting the voters have their say. And it's not like we're passing amendments willy nilly. Only 19 of 71 amendments that were advanced since 1912 have passed. Yeah, what what his he 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 and I had a conversation, and he had so much good information. I asked him to write this thing for us, and I'm grateful that he did. But what what he points out in crystal clear fashion is every elected official before the people we have in office now 
when they put things on the ballot, they wanted the most voters they could get. They wanted to hear what Ohio voters felt. This is the first time in history where they're seeking to have as few as voters speak out. That That is despicable, right? I mean, you are trying mm-hmm. to keep voters home so you can have your way. That's what dictators do, man. This is becoming an authoritarian state. Every step they take seeks to disembowel the voters. Gerrymandering did it. They did, Then when the voters went and changed, remember, they voted to change mm-hmm. the process, they disobeyed the Constitution. Now they're trying to stop voters from ever telling them what to do again. Mike did a tremendous job. If you mm-hmm. haven't read it, seek it on cleveland.com. It's a great piece. You're listening to Today in Ohio. What's the great news this week for people who have ached for years to close Burke Lakefront Airport and turned it into the spectacular waterfront district we all know it could be? Laura. We get another study. Yay. Uh, this is separate from all the existing lakefront studies that's going on. Mayor Justin Bibb is recommending this team led by eConsult Solutions of Philadelphia for a four-month, $115,000 study on the potential of repurposing Burke. So this is going to compare the airport's economic impact with other potential uses, including as a park or a dense urban development. This is not going to get into the nitty-gritty of the contents of Burke, of the landfill beneath the runways, which I had no idea. I mean, I knew it was landfill, but there's rumors of what it includes, everything from construction and demolition debris, which seems pretty normal, to trash, washing machines, and car chassis, which, good Lord, that's something to, I guess we're going to have to study that. But the goal is to look at the big picture, create some analyses, and not spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on due diligence, but to see what's possible. And like I said, this is another study. We've got a couple going on. There's a separate analysis of Burke launched by the city in 2021 that was expanded in 2022 that looks at aviation and regulatory implications of closing Burke. And that should be, that's in its draft form now. It should be done at the same time as this study. So we'll end up with a pair of studies to look at. What this is taking on is the argument by the small number of people who support Burke that it's an economic generator. So this study will look at if we do other things there, what would be the economic development possibilities and how does that compare to what the airport generates? It's a smart tactic. And this group looks very, very qualified. They've looked at lakefronts and they've looked at different kinds of projects. So if there is economic fortunes and having a spectacular lakefront with parks and restaurants and whatever else, we're going to find out. And then that'll stand up to the the landings and takeoffs by flight schools out of Burke. (laughs) And there's so many implications of this that I hadn't even considered. Because it's an airport, there's height restrictions and limitations on land all around that Burke lakefront parcel. So including prohibitions on housing. So that if we didn't have an airport, that would change. They'd be looking at roads, whether they could be extended across the shoreway to better connect that land to the city's campus district south of the highway. Another consideration is whether Ohio uh, Department of Transportation is trying to smooth Dead Man's Curve on Interstate 90, if that would affect access to the Burke area. So obviously, this is an integral piece of the puzzle. It's going to work with a lot of other pieces downtown and whatever they decide to transform the lakefront into. Well, the, the people should, to get an idea of just how much Burke gets in the way of the lake, look, go on to Google Maps and look at how much of the Cleveland downtown lakefront is consumed by the airport. 
it's enormous. It's it's the it's probably more than half of the downtown lakefront is consumed by an airport. And think about what other cities would do with a downtown lakefront. Yeah, and I mean, they, there's a couple of businesses in there's those um, apartments and a yacht club, but then you get to 55th, then you have the public access, but there's not a lot of land there. And obviously they're trying to do a lot with that. So if there was this huge parcel of land, yeah, the possibilities are endless. And 55th is not downtown. You're getting further east. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Lalo City Council in Cleveland is taking a step that will leave a lot of people of some debt, but at a substantial cost of tax dollars. What's their justification? Last night, City Council approved legislation that lets the city contract with a New York-based nonprofit called RIP Medical Debt, which is really on the nose, I think. But uh, under under this deal, the city would give $2 million to this group, which buys outstanding medical debt at a discount and forgives it. And the city expects that this would help clear about $190 million of debt for nearly 50,000 Clevelanders. And they say that debt is destroying lives financially because debt like that can negatively affect a person's credit score, which impacts many aspects of life, including their housing options and their borrowing ability. But also the burden of that debt often deters people from seeking the medical treatment they need because they're afraid of accumulating more debt. So people get sicker and need more complex care in the long run. So Clevelanders who make less than 400% of the federal poverty rate or whose debts are 5% or more of their annual income are eligible for this program. And the company promises that every dollar in investment forgives $100 in debt. The $2 million is coming from the city's general fund, but it originated as, as American Rescue Plan Act money. The money was transferred to the general fund as re- revenue recovery from the pandemic. Once that happens, it means the city can spend it with no strings attached, just as it would any other general fund money. So RIP medical debt is still negotiating with hospitals on buying patients' debt, but they're hopeful that the hospitals will see this as a win-win for everybody involved because the debt they'd be selling off is typically considered terminally bad debt that they don't really expect to ever be paid off. Well, if it's terminally bad debt, then why should tax money be used to pay it off? Uh, well, because these people then get instant relief from that debt, and it has repercussions that uh, ripple through society, I suppose. I don't know. We talked uh, I don't know, earlier this year, sometime last year, when the idea came up of using money to tax money to send women out of state for abortions and how that was expanding the use of tax dollars. This is another expansion of the use of tax dollars. And I wonder how the taxpayers to the city of Cleveland, the people who don't live there but work there and pay for most of the budget, would feel about the expansion of the use of tax dollars for social causes like this. I guess it kind of depends on what your philosophy is on on whether improving the circumstances for one person or a big group of people, in this case, 50,000 people, would impact have an impact on, on the rest of us. If you do believe that that's true, then this is seen as a good investment. I happen to kind of be in that camp, I think. Okay. Laura, Lisa, you got any thoughts on this, this use of tax dollars? Well, I came out in in the editorial board roundtable against forgiving student loan debt. So I guess you can get this where I fall on this. <laughs> All right. It's an interesting idea. And, and I like the way city council is thinking and trying to relieve burdens. But it, it does seem like it's a way 
to get a lot of people angry about the use of their tax dollars. I, I wonder know. if there's been a lot of public comment about it. I mean, I, now the city council allows public comment at their meetings. Are they getting a lot of people saying, don't spend my tax money this way? Yeah, I don't know. Check out the story. It's on cleveland.com. You are listening to Today in Ohio. We've been talking a lot about civility and civil discourse. Lisa, what is the civility caucus in Congress and who was behind it? Civility in Congress don't seem to go together, do they? It's kind of an oxymoron. But uh, Columbus U.S. Representatives Joyce Beatty, the Democrat, and Republican Mike Carey announced the reformation of the Congressional Civility and Respect Caucus. It was originally created in 2018 by Beatty and former uh, Representative Steve Stivers. So the original group had 42 members who signed up. But in the current iteration, only Beatty and Carey are members of the group so far. So the way you join this caucus is that you have to pair with a lawmaker from the opposite party. So a Democrat and a Republican have to pair up and join this caucus as a duo, which is pretty cool. So uh, Beatty says, you know, in the you know, in the past, they've hosted dinners, they've visited each other's districts, they've met each other's families. And she says, you know, if you know somebody, you can be great friends and still not vote together. And Carrie said that, you know, the public really needs to know that we don't hate each other. He says that 80% of Congress members really try to be bipartisan to get things done. But he says, unfortunately, the public only sees the rabble rousers. They only see certain, a small percentage of lawmakers who are very vocal on news and social media. And Beatty, I had to laugh. Ms. Beatty said, you know, we have a good delegation, maybe minus one. Yeah, I was going to ask, who did Jim Jordan pair up with? <laughs> I just don't see him being involved in anything you would call civil. Um, it's a, it's an interesting concept. Look, the idea that they're talking to each other and trying to, to be friends would help lower the temperature because so much of what we see is vicious and, and a refusal to work together. And if they start to get together and have these kinds of conversations, maybe they'll find a way forward. It, it would be a wonderful development if this became real. And if Jim Jordan paired up with somebody, it would be even more interesting. <laughs> Maybe he and Chantel Brown could pair up. <laughs> oh, fireworks. <laughs> You're listening to Today in Ohio. For a while, nursing homes seemed to lose their lobbying mojo in prying big bucks out of the Ohio legislature. But man, they appear to have it back. How is the Ohio House looking to put more money into the pockets of nursing home companies, Laura? So this is the House's current budget proposal, and it would deepen all of these investments in, in nursing homes. And that includes allowing previously appropriated COVID relief dollars to flow to some of the most well-off facilities in the state. One of the few possible recipients actually said they wouldn't take it and described it as greedy. So if you've got somebody who could benefit from the moment, the money saying it's greedy, you got to look twice. So one other thing big change would be to make Medicaid pay providers extra money to put residents in private rooms. Medicaid hasn't done that in the past, but they're saying, you know, everybody wants privacy and it actually would stop germs from, from spreading quite so fast. The good news is that the house budget also has some new spending and assisted living and community and home-based care. That keeps people in their homes much longer. Usually people prefer it and is much cheaper than putting someone in a nursing home. But yes, we all know in Ohio, nursing homes are known for their political clout. One other good thing is that this budget would increase the home care workers who help older patients 
with things like changing, cooking, and cleaning, they make about $10 to $12 an hour now. They go up to $18 an hour, which would hopefully attract a lot more people to those jobs. Are they adding any kind of audit function to make sure there's accountability for this and it just doesn't enrich the owners of the nursing homes? No, that was not part of the house budget. I don't know that they... If the nursing home lobby is pushing for this, I don't think they're pushing for the audits. And we're talking a whole lot of money, $350 million in the COVID money just to go to six nursing homes that are not enrolled in Medicaid. And these are more upscale facilities that that cater to people with private insurance. And I believe somebody basically said that, well, the pandemic, yeah, it's, it's good old Bill Seitz and Jim Thomas. They have... Uh, sponsored this, and they both have facilities in their districts. They said the pandemic ravaged every facility, not just more modest kinds of nursing homes. I see. <laughs> yeah. I, the legislature in this state is so bought and paid for by lobbyists. I don't think they remember that they're supposed to serve the voters. As evidenced by the constitutional amendment raising the threshold for constitutional amendments. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Layla, Cuyahoga County elected officials opted to waste $50 million or so on the failure of the medical mart last year. And now comes news that the contractor already is dipping into a contingency fund to augment the original plan. Why? <laughs> Reporter Caitlin Durbin got to take a tour of the ongoing renovations along with the board that oversees the facility. And she learned that Turner Construction, which is the company that's performing this work, says that they've already dipped into the $4 million contingency budget to make enhancements to the original renovation plan. Those so far add up to about a quarter of a million dollars for things like improving the security command center, adding a collapsible wall on the second floor to provide easier access to the future rooftop area, and improving guest views in some parts of the building. They also want to install bird-friendly windows so birds can avoid flying into them. The overall project budget is still the same, $49 million, but they fit, if they finish faster or cheaper than expected, then the added expenses are going to eat into the cost savings that we see. Construction is expected to be complete by the end of June 2024. That would be two months before the American Society of, of Association Executives comes to town. That's the nation's largest gathering of national convention and meeting planners. So impressing that group could be critical to future business at this facility. Uh-huh. Listeners, you can go to cleveland.com and see Caitlin's pictures of the renovations that are that are underway. So... They're adding features as they go. You and Laura both had big house renovations last year. Did you just keep saying, hey, contractor, let's add this. Let's add that. Let's add another sink. Let's change the windows. Or did you pretty much have a plan and stick to it? You're really tearing open a wound here. (laughs) (laughs) I can't talk about this. (laughs) I ended up opting for heated floors. So that was something I did. But um, obviously, it costs you more. And I unfortunately don't have a taxpayer-funded subsidy account that I can just go to. (laughs) But to to write the newsletter, um, the wake-up newsletter for today, I went back and looked at my old stories and do you guys remember when it was like this race to build a MedMart and New York had it and Nashville yeah, had it and they were like fighting over who's going to be one? Yeah. Just to be clear, Cleveland's the only one who built one of these white elephants and the other ones came to their senses before they got a shovel <laughs> on the ground. Yeah. I mean, we can't say these are overruns because they did build in a $4 million cushion to absorb overruns and they are adding stuff to make sure they spend the money. You're listening to Today in Ohio. 
Zachary Smith put together one of the most depressing stories I've read in a long time, detailing all of the toxic releases of chemicals by companies in our region. It seems like toxins are everywhere, Lisa. Why? Well, they are. And I think we'd be fooling ourselves to say that Cleveland isn't full of toxins. We're an industrial city. But anyway, just to see the numbers kind of brings it into focus. So the EPA has this inventory that they do of toxic releases and toxic release facilities. So in in the Cuyahoga County area, they had tracked 130 toxic release facilities. They released a combined 8.7 million pounds of pollutants, including 79 toxic chemicals. That's a million pounds more than in 2020. In Cleveland, that was the largest contributor, 7.1 million pounds. Solon had 533,000 pounds. Euclid had 512,000 pounds. So the biggest contributor in Cleveland is the Cleveland Cliff Steel Plant. It had the highest releases in the county. 74% of them were from Cleveland Cliffs. 6.48 million pounds, so almost the entire total. Most of their stuff goes into landfills or underground injection wells or it's transported off-site. Most of their toxic releases are zinc components, which have a low-risk score in the EPA toxic release inventory, but still linked to blood clotting disorders and infertility. The uh, number one company for the more serious uh, releases I'd not really heard of. Right. Yeah. The highest risk was McGean Chemical, which is in Newburgh Heights. And even though their releases were low, they released... 722 pounds of chromium into the air, which is a very high-risk carcinogenic uh, toxin. Yeah, I, to think about a million extra pounds in one year mm-hmm. of toxins, it's just, it's depressing that we're surrounded by this stuff. They, they, the, the story did say that the bulk of what they release goes into the ground and that the air and water releases are much more serious. And we don't seem to have nearly as big a problem with those. That's correct. You know, and actually the number two release was manganese and manganese compounds, which only has a moderate risk score, according to the EPA, although it can cause nerve damage. Okay. You can check out Zachary's story if you want to be depressed. It's on cleveland.com. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Who knew? Pavement bricks are not forever. People who bought bricks to help pay for a Bob Feller monument at the Cleveland Baseball Stadium years ago are getting last chance calls from the Guardians. Laura, why? Because they've reached the end of the road. And I've got to think these are not actually through and through bricks because you look at the old streets that have been there for 100 years that are still brick. But these are brick pavers that people bought to create this Bob Feller statue that Um, was unveiled prior to then Jacobs Field's inaugural opening day on April 4th, 1994. So it has been quite a bit of time. They sold about 6,000 bricks to finance the statue. And they're going to, they've already moved them once from outside the right field gate to Gateway Plaza in 2014 because of ballpark renovations. They say they can't move them again. They're not safe and they don't have purchase records. So they don't have a database to to alert the brick owner. So they're actually asking people to email fan services at cleeguardians.com so they can record your information. They're going to put an online gallery together so you'll be able to see your name or whatever you had inscribed forever 
on the internet. That, that, I guarantee you that the people who bought these bricks thought they would be there forever. No, it's a brick. I mean, you're right. We got 100-year-old brick streets in Cleveland that are still in use. I don't get this. It just seems like, wow, of people who invested and were excited, their name would always be part of the baseball stadium. Not happening. I, that throws me. Now I'm worried about my brick. My baseball husband and I have a brick outside Minute Maid Park, and now I'm worried about it because <laughs> it's about 20 years old as well. Is it so. on the ground or is it in a wall? Because I think that makes a difference. It's in the ground. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. right now the bricks in Heritage Park that include plaques commemorating Cleveland ballplayers from all area, that's a separate project, not affected. That's within the stadium, not far from the Feller statue. But yeah, the ones that you bought, to honor Bob Feller, who's the gold standard for pitchers in Cleveland, those are going to be gone. Want, and it's not like they're even like, hey, come pick up your brick. They're like, we'll take pictures of them for I you. I wonder if they use substandard materials. It, you're saying that they've been there a long time? That's not a long time. Well, that's what I was thinking. This is okay. There's a difference between a brick and a brick paver, right? There's the brick pavers that they put in that look nice at the beginning. And then I don't know if they're really concrete or what they are. They fade, they crack. I mean, yeah, it does not feel like the bricks that I find washed up on the beach that still look great after mm -hmm. God knows how many years. I'm betting that if you go back and look at the marketing materials for these bricks back in the day, there were a lot of words like permanent and things like that to say you will always be a part of baseball lore in Cleveland. And a quarter century later, it's we're crushing them. You're done and you can't even have it. I, I was really shocked by this story. And people are reading it, so I wonder if the uh, Guardians are getting a lot of blowback. I, I would be furious. I mean, I would think, you know, we paid for this, we wanted to be a part of it, and now we're not going to have any part of history. What they probably should do is figure out a way to repeat the names in some other permanent location. You're listening to Today in Ohio. That closes out a Tuesday discussion. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. Come back Wednesday. We'll be talking about some more news.